0: Thank you for listening to the Sharon Church Podcast. If you would like to know more about the church, please visit us at Sharonchurch.com. Now we hope you learn from and enjoy today's message. Hey, go ahead and turn to Ephesians chapter 4. We'll be in Ephesians 4 this morning, continuing our series through the book of Ephesians. It's a letter that Paul wrote to a church in Ephesus, which is in Asia Minor. Uh, we'll study it uh, Just the first 16 verses of chapter 4 this morning. Uh, Chapters 1 through 3 are all doctrine and theology. It's all kind of thick, heady stuff. But Paul makes a transition here for you uh, practical-minded, application kind of people. This is where we're going to turn for you, and you're going to like the the rest of them. Um, This is application-centered here from chapter 4 on. We're going to talk about the church this morning. Um, There are ways that um, I have studied this passage in the past. And it's funny, when you study it, and then when you put it in context, you realize, I think I've taught that wrong for like 10 years, and I just, I didn't know. Like, it's still true, but it's not as true as it is when you read it in context. So it's been quite a week for me of unearthing and kind of rediscovering some things. So I want to teach from that perspective this morning um, from Ephesians chapter 4. Uh, we'll talk through the 16 verses. I'll give us three kind of points of application at the end, and, and we'll pray. And God's going to send us out this morning. I don't know if you have kids. We have kids: 11 uh, year old, 7 year old, and a 4 year old. And our two youngest have fallen in love with YouTube. Uh, was YouTube kids? Now it's just YouTube for us, and uh, with caution, and parental guidance, and all those types of things. But they they love it. They only get we give them like 8 to 9 hours of screen time a day, just just to raise them well and the nurture and admonition of, of YouTube. Uh, but they, it's interesting, our four-year-old, she loves to watch videos of other little girls playing with Barbies, like their own Barbies. Like she likes to watch them uh, like open toys and then put them together and play with them. And Now, keep in mind, she has a room full with Barbies in it, um, Barbies that she can braid their hair, and she can dress them, and her brothers can cut their hair and chop off their legs, like real actual Barbies. Uh, but our daughter would rather watch someone else uh, play with theirs than for her to play with hers. Now, she gets better and she plays, brings hers out as she's watching, she'll play. And then our seven-year-old, Kaysen, um, Kaysen likes video games because he's a boy and he's seven. And so um, he likes video games. What he really likes to do is to watch other seven-year-old boys play Minecraft on TV. He has Minecraft. He just likes to watch other people do it. Uh, it's better that way, I guess. I don't know. He, just, he likes it. And uh, I, I criticize him all the time. I'm like, what are you guys doing? We have spent f- actual money, real things, like real, you can touch it, money on these toys that you literally have, that you, can, that you wanted so badly to play with because you saw it on TV, but you're going to watch someone else do that instead. And then I'm reminded of how guilty I am of that same thing, particularly in the church. Uh, that God has given me things, but it's like I'd rather watch someone else do it than for me to actually participate. God has gifted each and every one of us, but we are prone to want to be entertained rather than to use what God has given us. Um, So immediately you feel the guilt coming I'm not I don't want to guilt anybody this morning. I am prone to guilt. You can guilt me into anything. I, I'm awful at buying cars. I'm awful at going to the repair shop. Like you can you can lie to me and I'll believe you if you make it sound sad enough. Sarah McLaughlin just gets me every time. But if uh, I don't wanna guilt you this morning. I, what I want to do is I wanna, I wanna raise our heads to something that God has called the church to be and to get to do this morning in Ephesians chapter four. But I think we have to admit, first of all, this, that we're often tempted to watch other people play with their gifts rather than to utilize ours. And we've got rooms full, but we'd rather watch other people do it. Secondly is this, uh, we're in a culture um, that has shifted church from being primary and foundational to now being an add-on to our lives. And what I mean by this is if you look at your calendar throughout your week, um, I think God would intend that church would be the first blocks you put in. If it's gathering together or prayer time or Bible study or whatever it is, those would be the blocks you put in. Then everything else revolves around those spaces. The church should be primary for us. And I know, listen, for me to say that as a pastor on staff here at the church, it would make sense for me to say, you should be here more, and you should probably give financially. I'm just saying, I feel like, so it probably sounds, of course, you would say that. I'm just, I just want to teach the Bible this morning that, that says that. And for you to know that we are a family who was um, out of ministry for a number of, of years and had gotten to the point where we just we recognized that we had pushed it back and we, we, wanted, we wanted to be with God's people. Like it wasn't about the other things. That was what's important for us was to be with God's people. So I want to walk us through uh, this passage this morning with a couple of those things in mind. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 4. We'll start in verse 1. Um, again, verse, chapters 1 through 3 are highly theological, highly doctrinally um, based because Paul is setting the foundation for application, We're guilty, uh, I think as Americans, of just wanting to know, what do I do, though? Like, what do I do? I get what you want me to know, but like, what do I do? It's probably rooted in taking geometry in 10th grade and being like, when will I ever use this? Like, okay, I get what a Pythagorean theorem is. Will I ever actually use that at the grocery store? The answer is no, you won't. But we're wired for that. And so Paul gives us doctrine for three chapters and now into chapter four, which is why this is important for us theologically to study the entire scope of scripture. Verse one. Paul says, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Remember the context of Ephesians, a church at Ephesus, which is in Asia Minor, founded and reaching Jewish believers, Jewish Christians, and Gentile, ethnic, non-Jewish Christians. And they're all gathered together in this church together. This is a letter that was written by Paul and then sent to be read. An issue with the church at Ephesus is that they are—they've become divisive uh, because of their backgrounds. It's not divisive about Jesus. It's divisive about how do you get to Jesus. Because the Jews are fine with Gentiles coming to know Jesus as long as they become Jews first. And to become Jews, you have to observe the Sabbath day to keep, by keeping it holy. You have to obey their dietary restrictions. And by the way, males have to be circumcised. And so the husbands are like, let's find another church, baby. I don't think this one's going to work for us the wife's like, no, let's just give it another try. Maybe the kids love it. We should stay. Anyway, so that, that, that's, this, this is an issue of the church at Ephesus. And so Paul has continually said, hey, unity, unity around the gospel of Jesus. He reminds them they were called, not because of anything they had done, but because God had chosen them. He shows that their faith had nothing to do with them, but by grace through faith, they have been saved. They've, in fact, been given works to do by God, not because of them, but because of the gifting God has given them. And because of that, then they can find unity. So as Paul shifts uh, now into out of our brain, our head space and into our hand space, he has to remind them. He says, I'm a prisoner for the Lord. He's literally in prison. That's not like some metaphor. Uh, it's, it's not his, his rap name. He's literally a prisoner for the Lord. Urge you, this word urge is to beseech or to beg. So it's It's uh, more than an encouragement, but it's less than a command, but it's heartfelt. It's wrenching. I urge you to walk. Paul's going to use this Greek word for walk eight more times in the next three chapters. And I love that he does uh, this idea of walking is literally step by step. He's not mall walking, not running, not dancing, not sprinting, not driving, but walking. And here's why it's important. Walking is deliberate, and it's intentional, and it's slow, and we don't like slow. We want fast. We want now. Or we want to arrive before we leave, but Paul says we have to walk and says to walk this way in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Well, what's the calling to which they've been called? Well, that's in Ephesians chapter one. They've been called as sons and daughters of the most high King they've been called. And Paul says, I want you to walk in such a way uh, that you look like that, that you are worthy of that calling, that you step into, you lean into, you put on the clothes of that calling. Walk in in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Then he describes it in verse two, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. What you notice about these four attributes is that they are all interpersonal. You can know someone's theology better by how they treat you on Monday than how they greeted you at church on Sunday. You're going to know about your spouse's theology by how they lead your home or care for your children or care for you during the week more than you're going to learn by the way they sing on a Sunday morning. Isn't that true? Interpersonally is where we really express theology. It's why the great commandment will be narrowed down to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. That's how we express our theology. So here's how we walk worthy of the calling. Humility, gentleness, patience, and bearing with one another in love. Four check marks. How are you doing this week in walking worthy of the calling? Hopefully not as poorly as I'm doing this week. Like it's been a struggle to be patient, It's been a struggle to bear with one another. But this is what it means to walk worthy of the calling. But he kind of puts the cherry on the top here in in verse 3. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Now, you don't have to go very far to realize we are not necessarily a people, uh, not just our church, but generally a people. We're not a humanity uh, that is devoted to maintaining unity. We seem to really like being divisive. Like we just we feel comfortable there, we feel more comfortable if we're um, saying passive aggressive things or if we're um, making statements on Facebook or calling out certain people for how they vote. He says, no, no. To walk worthy of the calling is to be eager, to lean in, to want to, desire to maintain this word maintain, notice that's interesting. He's not saying to build unity. He's not saying to fight for unity. He's not saying to create unity. He's not saying, hey, do some programs and wear some t-shirts that you can have unity in your church. He's just saying, maintain it, keep it, protect it, guard it. We've been given unity, Paul tells us, through the cross of Jesus. That's all we need. That is literally all we need to have unity. It's enough. It satisfies. The church should be the most Um, the most diverse place on the planet. And I don't even just mean that by skin color. I mean, um, you should have Ford people and Chevy people in the same church together. Uh, We should have uh, Georgia fans and Georgia Tech people uh, in the church uh, as well. Like we should, we can all coexist together. We can love one another because what we have is settled at the cross. According to Ephesians chapter three, that's what gives us the fullness of God and we're satisfied in him. So we maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Just a real quick statement, um, kind of on topic. The greatest threat to our calling as a people and as a church is pride. It's pride. Um, Pride and unity cannot coexist. Where there is pride, you will have disunity. Disunity. And pride just begets, gives birth to more pride. I don't think I've ever seen a proud person literally actually humble someone. It just creates more pride. It's the greatest threat to us. This is why he says humility and gentleness, patience and bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain unity. All right, verses four through six, Paul's going to remind them of their unity. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope uh, that belongs to your call. That your is plural. Uh, so in the South we would say you one body, one spirit. You're called to one hope that belongs to Y'all's call, unity. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Paul is just driving the point home. You are one. You have your unity is found in this one thing, one body, one spirit. You have oneness together. You don't have to find it, it's already there. He gave it to you. Uh, but Paul's not an idiot. Paul isn't just going to be a cheerleader. Paul's going to be a realist here. And Paul's going to say, but here's what I do understand where division comes from. I understand that you can't just say, oh, we love each other. There's going to be things that rise up. And he's going to address the primary one um, here off the top in verse seven. Verse seven, but grace was given. It's that word but that's so essential for us. It's one train of thought but he says, I understand, but there's an issue, but there's a problem coming, but there's a storm brewing. But now he's gonna identify, here's where the greatest cause of disunity happens in the church. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Uh, circle that word each in your Bible. That word each is not a um, unifying word, that's a dividing word, right? Each Uh, is peculiar. It is particular. Each one of us, each of you, grace was given to each individual person. But then he says, according to the measure of Christ's gift or according to the amount that Christ gave to each person. Well, that's a problem because right when I tell you that Christ decided what gift of grace to give each and every one of us, the first thought you have, if you're wired like me is, well, is mine better? Do I have more? Why does, he have, why, why does someone have more gift than I do? Which is the beginning of disunity. It creates a pride. I'm after myself. I'm looking out for me. So Paul says, here's what I understand. I, here's what I understand. Biblically speaking, Christ has given each of us a varied measure of gifted, of grace. He's given various degrees of it. Salvation was enough for all of us, and now he's given us a peculiar amount of giftedness as a body. So then Paul is gonna say, this is a reference to an Old Testament passage, Psalm 68. Therefore, here's where he gets this from. It says that when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and gave gifts to men. Verse nine, in saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth. Well, he who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. Got it? We can move forward then? Great. So Paul's referencing Psalm 68, verse 18. He's kind of paraphrasing. He's adapting it a bit. And the psalmist in Psalm 18 is referencing something back Um, in those days, more of a military kind of thing. What he's referencing is this, that uh, a king or a general would lead his military into battle and cities were up on the town, up on top of mountains, cities on a hill. And whenever they would battle, whenever they would, or even in battle, they would try to get to the high point, create a high point, and the battles would happen down in the valley. So a king would lead his army down the valley, they'd lead each other, then they'd fight in the valley. Now, from the valley, from that battle, one would be a victor, and the victor would get what's called the spoils of war. He would get what he took from the other opposing army or country. And then, so he has descended to the valley for the battle, and then he ascends. He goes up the hill, back up to his city, to his country, uh, to his kingdom, with the spoils of war. Psalm 68, the psalmist tells us that Jesus is like that. Jesus... Has descended from heaven, Philippians chapter 2. He's fought the battle in the valley of war. He has won the battle. He's defeated the enemy, defeated sin and death. And in defeating them, he then conquers the spoils of war. He takes back from the enemy what the enemy had, and now they belong to Jesus. And then Jesus ascended in Acts chapter 1 to his city on a hill where he sits at the right hand of the Father. And from these gifts in Ephesians 4, 10, he will fill the church. Does that make sense? The things that we're gonna read about here aren't, um, they're not re-gifted by God. He fought for them. He won them. In defeating sin and death, he won these gifts. I think sometimes we get gifts that we'd like to re-gift. We know people that give us good gifts and then those that don't give quite so good of gifts And you know which ones you're gonna open first at Christmas and all of those things. Sometimes we take the gifts of God and we treat them like a gift from your aunt who has no idea what you like anymore because you're not seven anymore. You're 40. And you don't want a Garfield mug. You want something different. So um, these gifts that Paul's gonna talk about, Jesus fought for. They were in the hands of the enemy and he rescued them back and he ascended into heaven and then he fills the church with these gifts. We have to understand how significant this is. Like he's, this, this isn't underwear and socks. This is something he gave his life for. Notice what he tells us the gifts are, verse 11. And the gifts he gave were the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers which feels disappointing. Because if Jesus was gonna go win some stuff, I don't want people. Like, I want some stuff. But what he brought back from war was these offices of the church, roles of the church. Now, this is where I went wrong a number of years ago studying this. So in context, um, these apostles and prophets paul always links them together in all of his letters he lists he links the apostles and prophets together and he calls them the foundation he says the foundation of the apostles and prophets so again these are offices of the church this this is a gift from god to the church they are offices they are roles in the church big church, like capital C, Acts 2 church from the beginning of time. And what God gave the church was he gave them first apostles. Now, in 1 Corinthians and other um, letters from Paul, he talks about spiritual gifts. And there is a gift of apostleship. There's an an apostolic gift. This is not speaking of the gift. I think the church still has an apostolic gift. People have that gifting. This is an office. So at the foundation of the church, God gave apostles. And here's how, here's here's why I lean that direction. Here's why I think this is what he is saying. He always links it with prophets. And there are qualifications to be an apostle, biblically speaking. You had to have uh, physically seen the resurrected Jesus and been um, verbally called by him to ministry. A sent one is the word. To be sent by Jesus is what an apostle would be. You got 12 of them. Um, He called from fishing and tax collecting and those things. And then you've got... um, Paul in the New Testament, who was seen Jesus in Acts chapter 8, became Paul and then was sent as a missionary into the world. So you got, these are the apostles. And Paul is saying they are a gift. They are the establishment of the church. Then you've also got New Testament prophets. We know Old Testament prophets. You got New Testament prophets. Think uh, John the Baptist. Think of people like that. They are truth tellers. Sometimes they speak of what God will do in the future, and sometimes they just speak over people or over situations, but they're the ones who proclaim the word of God. Apostles are itinerant, meaning that they travel around. Uh, an apostolic gift would be one that like, um, you start churches, you start ministries, you start things, you, you wanna go expand the kingdom. That's apostolic. Uh, prophets, though, were localized. Prophets had a hometown, a home base, a people they ministered to and spoke truth to and truth over. But these are authoritative roles, apostle and prophet here they're speaking of. There is a gift of prophecy. That is a gift that did not die. It's a gift in other letters from Paul. This is speaking of the office of a New Testament prophet. There aren't any more of those. Okay, So then he moves into evangelists and then shepherds and teachers. I want to separate shepherds and teachers into two separate roles, but I don't think, I don't think the Bible allows me to do that. This is, it's hyphenated in Greek. It's why there's not a comma after shepherds before and for us. Think of shepherd teacher. For us would be the idea of what we now know as a modern pastor would be a shepherd teacher. But evangelist, we know what an evangelist is. We know Billy Graham. Uh, Billy, uh, an evangelist is one who travels itinerantly, proclaiming the gospel, uh, bringing new life to people who are dead, new life and salvation. So an evangelist is an office that still exists in the big C church today. It's still a role. But the evangelist then would be kind of the modern day adaptation of an apostle, foundation of apostles and prophets. Evangelists come off off of the apostles. Pastors come off of the prophets. So a pastor plays a prophetic role in the church. And if that scares you, just read your Bible. It's okay. Uh, What that means is it's the pastor's role to speak the words of God to a particular people at a particular time. So the evangelist would be like a missionary. A shepherd teacher would be like a pastor. Are we good? Everybody with me? Are we okay? So it's building off of these foundations. So what it comes down to is this. Whether you like it or not, the pastors of this church are a gift to the church. Now, you might want to keep the receipt on some of them. That's fine. That's totally fine. You can return them, exchange them, upgrade them, whatever you want to do. But the office of pastor, the office of missionary is a gift that Jesus won back from Satan himself. The enemy had had co-opted that kind of person, that type of office, and God rescued, he redeemed, he bought that back through battle, and now he gives it as a gift to the church. Many of us have had poor pastoral experiences and we would say, that's not a gift I want again. I don't, I don't want a pastor. I don't want a missionary. We'll get to that here in a second. But there's a reason. There's this, the reason for the gifting is this, verse 12. To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up the body of Christ. The reason God gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastors is that the church would be equipped. Now, this word equipped is a medical term in the Greek, which means to set a broken bone or to reset the body in place. So Paul calls the church the body of Christ. And what he's saying is it's the role of the the foundation of the apostles and prophets, now evangelists and pastors, to set the broken bones of the body of Christ. So what it means to be equipped is that you've been set in the right place. You've been You've been fixed to where you would be fastened together, where ligaments and sinews can come and build the body of Christ. The role of a pastor, the role of a missionary, is to set the broken bones of the body. That's our job. Well, to do so for the work of the ministry. Now, we can read that a lot and think about, well, then that must mean Sunday morning ministry. No, no, for the works of service. This literally means to be the church to meet each other's needs, to minister to one another. And then this next phrase, for building up the body of Christ. I used to think that was a separate phrase. That as a pastor, I was called to equip the saints and to build up the body. It's not. This is a continuation. This is how Paul is describing the work of ministry. The work of ministry is building up the body of Christ. It's for building up the body of Christ. Which means this that the primary work of the ministry is the building up of the church. And again, of course the pastor would say that. Of course he'd be focused on his thing and want that to be primary. I just think it's biblical. The primary work of the ministry is the building up of the church the universal church manifested in the local church, the primary work of ministry. What pastors are called to do is to equip the saints, equip you and me, equip us, equip the believers for the building up of the church, that in your giftedness, you would build up the church. So it means this, we've all been given various degrees of God's grace, 1 Peter 4.10. We've all been given different manifestations of of his grace through gifts. We all have different spiritual gifts. But here's the thing, your gift is primarily for the edification of the church. Now, can you find a career in that? Sure. Can you find a hobby in that? Yes, but primarily your giftedness and calling should be expressed in the body first. So, whatever you have been gifted and called to do, if you're exploring that in a career and not in the church, you are not exercising the spiritual gift God's given you. You're just trying to make money. And there are plenty of pastors, plenty of pastors who are utilizing the office to make money and not to make disciples. But the primary work of the ministry is the building up of the church. Your gifts are meant for the building up of the church first. Then Paul is gonna tell us when we can stop doing this in verse 13. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Okay, let's just look at it again. Until, so we can stop doing the work of the ministry at this point, back at the beginning of verse 13, Ray, he says, um, until we all attain unity of the faith, all of us, until all of us have attained the unity of the faith, And then knowledge, the epigenosis, the transformational knowledge of the Son of God. Hey, until once we're all mature men and women, once we all reach mature manhood, and we're so mature that we're at the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, then we can stop doing ministry. So, you know, not too far from now, we can stop. There's no end to the work of ministry, never. There's no end to it which for some of us freaks us out because we are checklist people. Well, you're saying that I can't check that off? Nope, it's continual. We never reach a point where we're done fulfilling the work of the ministry. We are never at that point. We never reach that point. And here's why, Uh, because we're a family and families just keep being families. And families uh, keep growing with babies. Sometimes they give birth to babies, sometimes we adopt babies, but families that are healthy, families that are thriving, families that grow, do so through new babies, which means there's always going to be babies who have to mature into manhood. Hopefully, I don't know how you raise your kids, but hopefully they mature into, into manhood. We are a family, which means this, that there will always be spiritual infants in our church. If we're doing it right, there will always be spiritual babies in our church. There will always be people who need to attain the fullness of the measure of Christ. Always people who need to grow uh, and mature into manhood. Always uh, people who need to grow into the unity of the church. Always, always, always. There will always be babies in our church. Now, I hope that's always physically true. But my prayer is that it's always spiritually true. There are always spiritual infants in our church. It is my prayer that for the life of our church... There are always people who don't know how to find the chapter and verse in the Bible. If we get to a point where we can just talk Greek to one another, then we're no longer making disciples. There should always be babies, always be spiritual infants in our church always be people smoking in the parking lot and trying to give up addictions, people trying to figure out what unity looks like, trying to figure out when to sit and when to stand. Do I raise my hand? Do I not? Why are we raising our hands? What does that word mean? I hope we always have spiritual infants in our church. And that never ends. We never reach a point where we've arrived at some level of churchdom that we can stop. If we're continuing to reach people we will continue to have infants in our church, but if you reach the point where you are so mature that everyone has to be as mature as you, then you, in fact, have become the infant. If if I, as a father, uh, demand my four-year-old to act like a forty-year-old, I am not a good dad. But it's like in the church, we find ways that we get annoyed by the babies. We reach some kind of maturity that now we're frustrated that someone took our seats. Someone didn't park in the right place. Someone didn't come in the right door. Someone didn't come at the right time. Someone did something in the parking lot that we're ashamed of. No, no. If you reach a point where you think everyone else has to be as mature as you are, then you are back in the baby category and you have to be grown in the unity of the faith and immaturity. Settled, satisfied, mature believers are completely content around the Christian babies, around spiritual infants in our church. And it's my prayer that we always have babies. We're always, always raising up new believers because it never ends And for this point in verse 14, for this reason, so that we, the church, may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. The reason why Paul is desiring maturity in the church and an ongoing um, progression in discipleship is not to have a fancy church. It's not to have better music and lights. It's, it's not to look cooler. It's not to, so that he as the pastor looks good. It's so that the babies are getting developed, so that they aren't tossed to and fro by false teaching. That's what he wants. He cares for them and their souls. He uses this phrase, um, doctrine, human cunning, craftiness, and deceitful schemes. Remember when we studied Acts chapter 20, Paul gathers the elders of the church at Ephesus together, and he says, hey, when I leave, ravenous wolves are coming in, and false teaching will rise up from within us. We've got to train our people. We've got to develop the sheep to spot the wolves. Because I can declare there are wolves, Daryl can declare there are wolves, Jeff can, Kyle can, Cody, Greg, Joel, whoever can declare there are wolves. But unless we train you, unless we develop you, unless we set the bones in place that you can identify the wolves, we will be eaten alive. We no longer wanna be tossed to and fro. So Paul's gonna give us another option, verse 15. Well, rather, we should speak the truth in love. Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head that is into Christ. Not to become Christ, but that we would be fixed into him. We'd get um, our information from him. This phrase, speaking truth in love, has been taken out of context repeatedly. Uh, Many of us are good at speaking truth. Many of us are doing love, but we're not so good at speaking truth in love. This doesn't mean you get to speak your opinion, that you get to speak any sort of truth. This is biblical doctrine truth, but he says to do it in love. And that doesn't mean that you give a compliment first and then you say the hard thing. Then you say another compliment and cheer. You can do it. It doesn't mean you write a Hallmark card. It doesn't mean you do it with flowers and a meal. What this means is you are free to speak the truth to someone if they know you love them. If you have made it abundantly clear that you love someone, speak truth. The only way to make it clear that you love them is by being present with them. So what he's saying is, hey, I'm not saying we shouldn't chase after holiness, that we shouldn't do righteous things, that we shouldn't urge one another on towards love and to good works. But what I'm saying is you need to love people in order to have the right to speak that into them. That's what Paul is saying. Rather, let's speak the truth in love. Do you love them? The reason that we feed our kids is because we want them not to die. Like we, we love them. We want them to be around. So we feed them. It's not because we're trying to make them into something, but we actually love them. If you love someone, you will nurture them and you will speak truth. Verse 16, this is Christ from whom the whole body, when joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, with which it has been laid next to each other, when each part is working properly, it makes the body grow so that it builds its health up in love. I love that. When we start going, we're just gonna start building ourselves up in love. So I wanna give us three, quickly, three uh, pieces of application, things that we can pull from this passage that we need to apply to our lives. But let me say this to you first. Um, If you're here this morning and you're new to our church and you've just been a little while and you're just visiting, um, I'm gonna say some things to our church body that may not apply to you right now. But at some point, um, you need to move out of your parents' basement and start to be an adult. So come here and heal um, but rehab isn't going to take five years. Come here, you're welcome here. Sit and heal. But at some point, the calling would be then to step into something God has called us to be. So first is this: that we all need a pastor. And this is why I think the gift of the of the pastorate is important. Every person needs a pastor. Um, your boss isn't your pastor your um, spouse isn't your pastor. Your best friend isn't your pastor. You need someone who's caring after your soul like a shepherd fights off wolves. That's the role of a pastor. It's not just to cast vision. It's not to be trendy. It's not to write books. It's to care for the souls of his flock. And everybody needs a pastor. I need a pastor. Daryl needs a pastor. We all need a pastor. So if you're just coming to church to hear a teacher, I think you're missing out. We all need to be shepherded. We need to be pastored. Um, We need to be equipped rather than be entertained. We need to be equipped rather than being entertained. But we've grown so content with being entertained, we're no longer pursuing being equipped. So if it's not funny enough or quick enough or um, the music's not good enough, or loud enough for the right songs, we get frustrated because we weren't entertained. Listen, there are way better places to go to be entertained than here. There are way more entertaining people to hear than me. We're here to be equipped rather than to be entertained because the shepherd is a protector and a provider. He's not a pop star. Because there are fierce wolves and twisted teaching that we need a shepherd. Uh, Secondly, we all need a purpose. We need a pastor and we need a purpose you need a calling, you need to understand our giftedness, we need something to give our lives to. We need uh, to contribute rather than to consume and complain. If that feels like I'm stepping on your toes, I'm sorry. But we need to contribute rather than consume and complain. Um, You know, when I complain the most is when I'm not contributing, is why I complain about roads not being finished 10 years after they started working on them. I'm not out there contributing. They should fix it. What's the problem? It's the same reason why um, your kids complain about the dinner you made for them. They didn't make it. They're just going to complain. Here's the issue that we have to all admit honestly and vulnerably. Uh, we are all consumers and complainers. We're just wired that way. Like we come out of the womb that way, literally. But when we begin to contribute uh, we start to understand the things that we have complained about isn't because that person isn't trying hard or doesn't want the best or doesn't love Jesus. It's because they just don't have the time or the capability or they're doing, literally doing the best that they can. When you contribute and you work side by side with somebody in a ministry or in the world, you begin to understand, oh, okay. Oh, now I get it. But we need a purpose. Some of us, it's because we don't know our gifting. So I just wanna give us a diagram to help us kind of tread into that. Sharon 101 class will help us understand some gifting, but our, our gifting is found here on this beautiful Venn diagram. You've got ability. <clears throat> These are things that you're, you're good at, right? You're just, you're just good at them. Um, it could be music, it could be math, it could uh, be cooking. You've got ability. Then the other side, you've got affinity, and that's just passion. Things that you like to do. What are you drawn to that you like to do? There are plenty of things for some of us that we're good at that we hate doing probably your job. You're good at it, but man, you hate going. That's that's what that is. You have an ability, but not an affinity, not a passion for it. And then at the bottom is affirmation of it. We've all watched American Idol. Um, You know, the the guy that his mama says is a really good singer. And then he sings out loud and you realize your mama's a liar. She's lied to you for 15 years. That's that's what happens sometimes. So we need affirmation. How do you get affirmation? Well, you got to be in community. You got to have people pointing it out in you. Other people saying, "Hey, I see this in you. Hey, I saw this. I saw you do this. Have you thought about doing that? Like in the church? This is where we find giftedness. We have abilities. Okay, what of those abilities are you passionate about? And then, which of those have other people pointed out in you? You might have found your spiritual gift. You might have found a gift. There's a list of them in First Corinthians. You can look through too. Um, that's where we find our giftedness. And the church is the place to exercise and practice your gifts." you can try them here. I think I might. Okay. Where do you want to try that? You try it here? Let's try. We can do that. All right. So we need a pastor. We need a purpose. And finally, we all need a people. Grey's Anatomy would say, we just need a person. Need your person. We all need a people. We don't do this life alone. And sure, you might have your coworkers and you might have your buddies from your frat when you were in college and the guys you go golfing with, but like, do you have a people, a church people? People who are pointing you to Jesus. People who care about your soul, not about your bank account. People who care about your marriage. People you can call at 2 a.m. and say, can I come over, I gotta talk. People that will bring you um, meals when you have babies or have surgery. Like, do you have people We need a people. Um, We need to care for and be cared for rather than being catered to. Oh, we become a people who just want to be catered to. Like we've lost the ability to care for and be cared for because we just want it to be right. Well, listen, to have a people means that sometimes it's not gonna be right. But man, we love you. And you love them. So let me practically give you a few ways for us, like just, I have to give you steps maybe so that you could engage and so you could find out what it's like to be part of a body. So a few things for you. It's going to come on the screen, a number you can text and you can text some of these words. I mean, walk through what the words mean before you text all of them. So you know what you're getting yourself into. Um, for many of us, it's, it's time for you to, it's time, like it's time to use your gifts in the church. It's just time. I don't want to guilt you into it. If you feel like I am, then you can pray about it. But if you feel like the Spirit is compelling you, like, ah, I knew it, and then he said something, now I have to, maybe that's what God is doing. So first, you can text Christmas to this number. Uh, December 4th and 5th, we're doing a drive-through nativity, a drive-through Christmas on our campus. So we need people to dress up like donkeys, if you can. I'm just kidding, we'll have live live ones. Uh, Live animals, Uh, we're going to share the story of Christmas, but all the way through the resurrection. We're going to share the gospel with people, and we need we need help. I mean, people who can build, people who can sow, people who can just stand there and talk while people drive by, pretend like you're in Jerusalem, you're in Bethlehem. Um, we need those types of people. If you want to be a part of that, it's a good way for you to get to know people and a good way to serve our church. Secondly, Sharon Church Kids, SC Kids. I'm just going to use that for our preschool and elementary ministry. Listen, we always need people to help serve our kids. In complete honesty. Um, we have struggled trying to figure out how do we do that. And so right now we're just trying to get volunteers. But man, it would be my vision. I would love to have a team of people who are passionate about Jesus, passionate about kids, and passionate about our church who wanna serve. That you just love doing it. You love getting to share the gospel with kids and see the light bulb come on when they get something. You like to watch um, four-year-olds dance and sing worship songs. Like if, I would love if that was you and you just text SC kids that number, um, maybe small groups. So let me just, we've had, we've had um, 52 different family units come to our church in the past two months, brand new family units, f- brand new families. You know, we have s- five small groups for f- that age, five. You know, we don't have a small group for people in their 20s. For people just married with no kids, we don't have a small group offering for them. So, man, maybe it's time for you to stop consuming in your group. Maybe you could help us lead one. If you want to text groups to that number, um, and then you can lead a group next week. It'd be great. I'm just kidding. We'll train you. Or if you want to be a part of a group, you're saying, I I need a people. I don't have a people. I've been attending for a long time, but I don't know anybody. Text groups to that number. You can text prayer to the number. We just want to build a team of people who are passionate about prayer, who believe that God works through prayer, who it's just it's a gift of yours. Your first instinct is to go to prayer. We want to build a team of people who are praying. You're praying during our services. You are um, setting up events for prayer, particularly for prayer. You're writing ways for people to pray. We want to build a team of those types of people. If we have requests coming, we can send it to you. And say, hey, would you pray for this person this week? Uh, Text prayer to that number. If that if nothing has been covered that you feel like you um, are good at and you like to do and have been told that you're good at, just text the word "serve" to that number, and we'll try to figure out a place to get you involved. Again, this isn't. We'll do ministry with two people. It's fine. Like it's, we're gonna do what God has called us to do. I want to invite you to be a part of it, though. Just like we're missing out on what God has intended the gift of the church to be if we're consuming and if it's not primary for us. I encourage you in that way. Let's just bow our heads and close our eyes and let some of this sink in. Again, my hope is not to guilt anyone. It's not to manipulate scripture to do anything. But there is a way that God has ordained and wired the world to function. And he has given the gift of the church. And inside of the church, he's given the gift of these offices. And then to each person, he's, been, he's given you gifts. The movie Chariots of Fire, the uh, marathon runner says that when he runs, he feels God. He feels the hand of God, the breath of God, the pleasure of God when he runs. For many of us, we haven't experienced the pleasure of God because we're not running. We're just sitting. So I want to encourage you, if you feel that, God has a plan for your life. He has good works that he's prepared beforehand for you. He's given you gifts to accomplish those works. And he's primarily said, hey, do it here. For some of us this morning, though, the reason um, we have a discontent, dissatisfaction is we don't have Jesus in us. We don't have his wholeness. And so we're chasing other things and we're tired and exhausted and frustrated. Well, to feel the fullness of God, to be filled with his spirit, to be filled with all the fullness of God, we just have to admit that we're broken, that we're sinners and that we need a savior, that we believe that Jesus is that savior, that through his literal death and literal coming to life, his resurrection, we can find hope. Relationship with God, just believe it and confess it, then that we know Jesus. I'd imagine for many of us this morning, the issue really has more to do with the other issues. We need a pastor. You don't need a teacher. You don't need a lecturer. You don't need a professor. You don't need a boss. You don't need a podcast. You don't need a guru. You don't need an Enneagram coach. You need a pastor. Secondly, um, you need a passion, a purpose. And finally, you need a people. Maybe today God is calling you to some of those things. God, we thank you for this morning. Thank you for what you've done in our lives. Thank you for your goodness and your mercy. Thank you for walking through the fire, leading us through it. Thank you for being bright in the darkness. Thank you for being um, good when it seems like there's nothing else. And God, this morning, I pray if there's anyone this morning who um, needs to come to a saving knowledge of you, someone who you've placed here at this time, at this moment, to hear these words about you, um, that you would give them the courage to respond to that effectual calling. And then for those of us this morning who you've convicted us in certain ways, God. You've convicted us about our view of the church and its primacy in our lives. Maybe you've convicted us about... Um, our need to put ourselves under someone who would care for our souls. Maybe you've convicted us about, um, maybe we complain and we criticize too much. We need to contribute. Help us to find our purpose. Help us to find our people. If it's not here, God, help us to help people find their people somewhere. A community of faith that would grow them in the nurture of the Lord. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen. Again, the calling this morning, the challenge is not to go out and do better. It's not to be better and try something better and work harder. It's to rest in the grace that God has given you and explore the grace he's given you in your gifting. Go in grace, church. You are dismissed. I love you.